As I mentioned last week, and I'll mention again this morning, nothing galvanizes our focus on things that are truly important to us, like the recognition that the end is near. When, when we know the end is approaching, our focus becomes very sharp. I'm sure you all know the story that as the Titanic sank, the, the band on the deck played the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. As they knew that the ship was going down and that they were about to likely lose their lives, their focus was on the fact that God was near, and they were near to God. They focused on the nearness of God. Pastor Dan Lee and his wife Kelly, who we've been praying for from Ambassador Baptist Church, she's struggling with cancer. He mentioned a couple weeks ago in his Facebook update on his wife's condition that they've been working on writing notes to leave for the children after she passes. They, they understand that unless the Lord does something unexpected and miraculous, that her time on earth is drawing to a close. And that realization has prompted these notes that they've written. Well, this past week, there have been pictures coming out of the Ukraine of the various things that are happening there as the Russian army has invaded that country. And, and I remember one of the pictures I saw a father was putting his two children on the train with his wife for them to flee to the west. And you could see he was talking to the children. We don't know what he said, but I am sure that the final words he spoke to his children were special words. Words of courage, words of, of love, knowing that they may be the very last words he ever speaks to his children. And I could go on and list countless examples of how knowing that the end is near affects what we do. People know that the, their lives are rapidly approaching the end and that determines what they do next. What we'll see in our text this morning is that all of us should be living our lives as if the end is rapidly approaching. As you see from the, the slide on the screen, we're, we're picking up with verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The, the verses that, that we're considering this morning, they, they bring to a close the large central section of Peter's letter. He's been, been dealing with how the suffering Christians to whom he wrote, the, these Christians that are scattered throughout what we would call the, the area of Asia Minor, He's been dealing with how they are to live their lives facing the hardships that are coming upon them because of their faith. They are suffering because they claim Jesus as Lord. They're facing hardships and he's reminded them that Christ himself suffered. And he's encouraged them that, that as they believe in Jesus Christ, as they've received salvation from the one who suffered on their behalf, that salvation should impact their lives. That salvation should impact their relationship to the world around them, and, and it should make a difference. And now he's drawing this large section to a close. At the end of the verses we looked at last week, immediately before the text that we're picking up here this morning, Peter reminded them, and through this letter, us as well, that the Lord and our Savior, he is coming. He is coming again, and when he does, he will judge everyone, including the very people that are making life difficult for those suffering for the name of Christ. Christ is coming again. For that reason, as we saw last week, we are to live pure lives, pure lives in the middle of an unsaved world. 
Well, this morning, the, this fact that Christ is coming again, that, that remains central in, in Peter's thoughts. He, he is coming soon. He is coming soon, and that means that the end is near. Not only should that knowledge impact the, the way we live before an unsaved world, it should also incite us to act in a certain manner now toward one another. It should impact how we deal with the people outside this building, but should also impact how we address each other, how we live together. There is nothing left on the, the calendar of re, historical redemption that must occur before Christ comes. His approach is near. I would summarize the main idea this morning as, since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. Devote ourselves. The fact that the end is near, that that our Lord is returning, that should cause us to focus on each other for God's glory. Devoting ourselves to one another with a strong devotion. Specifically in our verses, we we can see three different ways in which our lives should show this devotion toward each other in light of the fact that the end is approaching. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. Reading from verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the end is near? Peter says it's near. The end of all things is near. There's nothing else, as I said, on God's calendar that has to take place before Christ returns. He could come at any moment. We are in the, the final stage of redemption history. Do you believe the end is near? We are to accept that. And knowing the end is near should affect how we live. First... We must devote ourselves to prayer. Devote ourselves to prayer. Prayer is the first area that that Peter raises in our verses as an area to focus on. The end is near. Therefore, for that reason, since the end is near, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, there's certainly nothing in verse 7 that limits our prayers to prayers for one another. But I would hope that praying for others is a regular part of our prayers. We'd be awfully self-centered if when we pray, the only person we pray for is me. I I hope that's not the way we pray. That would be the epitome of selfishness. And if we think about it, the following verses, 8, 9, 10, 
They're focusing on one another. So I think it's reasonable to it can include the idea of prayers for one another in this devotion to prayer that we should have because the end is near. Now it is hard to translate the, the two commands that Peter gives in verse 7 into English. If you compare English versions, you'll, you'll find that there's differences. It's hard to, to translate these words, but we can generalize his idea with a couple of thoughts. One, through prayer, we remain balanced. We remain balanced. We should devote ourselves to prayer because through prayer, we remain balanced. The, the first command that Peter gives in verse 7, the, the one that, at least in New American Standard, is translated, be of sound judgment. That, that's a command to to think or to live in a wise fashion, to, to live with self-control over our passions and our desires. The translations use words such as sound judgment or self-control or serious to try to capture the, the concept that, that we are to be steady eddy kinds of people. In general, the idea is that we should be balanced. As we consider that, that the end is near, that this idea that the end is near, it should not cause us to, to go off the rails in, in either direction. We should not be like the person who is caught by surprise who then freezes not knowing what to do. Or we should not be like the person who's caught by surprise and suddenly starts scurrying around like a madman, accomplishing nothing. Martin Luther is claimed to have answered the question, if you know that today is the last day of your life, what will you do? Well, he claimed, he's, his claim they answered that question and said, well, if today is the last day of my life, I will plant a tree and pay my taxes. Because that was what was on his schedule for today. His point was, if today's the last day of my life, I will live it like I live every other day. Because I should be living every day in a manner that's pleasing to God. I should be living every day as, as if the, it could be the final day. So when the final day comes, it should be no different than a regular day. Our lives should be so balanced that the final day looks like every other day of life. Well, one of the things that we should pray for ourselves and for others is that God will allow us to remain balanced at all times. We should pray that, that circumstances will not cause us to lose our steadfast commitment to living for God. That, that we won't cease doing the things that we should do. That, that we won't swing to, to the other extreme and, and burn out trying to do things that beyond what we should do. That we'll live balanced lives. Prayer is one of the tools God has given us to remain balanced. That's the first general thought. The, the second is through prayer. We express dependence. We express dependence. The, the second word that, that Peter uses, the second command that he gives in verse 7, is a, a command to not be intoxicated, to, to be sober. The, the idea seems to be that, that through prayer, we should recognize reality. We, we shouldn't live like a drunk person who, who isn't thinking correctly about the world around him. We're totally and completely dependent upon God. Christ is returning. We're, we're in this final stage of, of a divinely initiated process that, that will culminate as he returns. 
his resurrection and his ascension, they've already guaranteed that he's coming again. But the fact that he's coming again does not mean that we need to stop living moment by moment in dependence upon God. We must depend upon God until he returns. Have you ever found yourself coasting through life on your own power? I'm sure we all have. It doesn't work very well. But we're all stupid enough to keep trying to do it anyway. Keep coasting on our own power. Well, doing that is akin to acting intoxicated. We're not dealing with reality. God is in control. That's reality. In reality, we have no power. We need a constant dependence upon God. Prayer reminds us that dependence is reality. Because in prayer, we are approaching to God. We bow before our God. We ask him for our needs, large and small. We, we beseech him on behalf of others. We express dependence on God. What I can never quite understand is why all of us who likely agree that, that we depend on God, all of us would likely agree with that sentiment and, and would agree that prayer is important. Why? When we agree, we spend so little time in prayer. I don't quite understand that. That's true for me. I know personally. I think it's true for most of us in our church, too. We know that we need to express our dependence upon God. We know that prayer is the means that God has given us to do that. We know that prayer is important. And yet we spend so little time actually praying. Coming out for a prayer meeting is not sufficiently important to warrant the effort. If it's meeting with our family for dinner at night in a restaurant, that's important. We make time for that, but not coming out 7 o'clock on Wednesday for prayer. Joining men's prayer time for Zoom on 7 a.m., it's not worth the effort. Yeah, I can get up and do a whole lot of things, but getting up for prayer? Too often our lives demonstrate that we think we can get by on our own. Folks, we need to pray. Through prayer, we express dependence. We express dependence for ourselves and for others. We depend upon God. We must devote ourselves to prayer. That, that's the first area to which we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. Through prayer, we remain balanced. Through prayer, we express dependence. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. We start as we devote ourselves to prayer. Second, in verses 8 and 9, we also see that, that we must devote ourselves to love. To love. We're not merely to have love for one another. Peter says we are to keep fervent in our love. Fervent. There, there should be a steadfastness to our love. There should be an earnestness. There should be a pursuit, a zeal in our love for each other. In fact, the, the word that starts verse 8 with, above all, that tells us that in Peter's mind, of the things he's talking about right here, this is the highest. This comes first. It's the highest of the things that we should focus on because the end is near. Love for each other is a premium. 
We must devote ourselves specifically, as I said, to one another. The readers are to love each other. The members of these churches that he's writing to, they're they're to pursue, pursue this earnest, fervent, steadfast love toward the other members of their church. Look around you this morning. Look around you. Take your time, swivel your head. Look, these are the people that you are to be fervent in love toward. You are to devote yourself to loving these people. It's not some general philosophical abstract principle. Should we love people? Yeah, we should love people. It's easy to think in the abstract because we don't do anything in the abstract. This is a command to love the people who exist in these pews right at this moment. The ones that are sitting next to you, the ones that you have not talked to in umpteen years because you sit on one side and they sit on the other. They're the people you're to love. We're to devote ourselves to loving others. Peter gives two specific examples of how devotion to love works itself out. One, we devote ourselves to love as through love we ignore wrongs. Through love we ignore wrongs. I use the word wrongs. Peter simply calls them what they are. A multitude of sins. A multitude of sins. Now, friends, this may shock you, but the people sitting next to you are going to sin against you. They may snap at you in frustration. They may gossip about you. They, they may say something unkind toward you. They may take advantage of your generosity. Look around you. Those people you see, they're sinners. Now, I'm not excusing those sins. Each of those sins is severe enough that it sent our Savior to the cross. We don't excuse those sins. What I am saying is that the reality is the people sitting around you will sin against you. And unfortunately, all of us will reciprocate because we're equally sinful. We all have that sin nature. And this is where love comes in. We can choose in love to ignore these sins, these wrongs that are committed against us. Our Savior said in John chapter 13, verse 35, that it's our love for one another that there will be the evidence that we are his disciples. We're distinguished from the world around us because we choose to overlook wrongs in love. We can choose prioritize showing the world that we are disciples of Christ over seeking retributions for wrong. The world's idea is someone wrongs you, you need to get even. Or better yet, one up so that you're ahead on the score. We can choose to take a different path. We can choose to love others in a fashion after the way Christ has loved us. We can choose to love others because the end is near. We can choose to love others because our Savior is returning. In the sin nature that all of us struggles with, it will be gone at that moment. 
We can choose to love others because we love our Savior more than we love our own rights. We can choose to love others, and as we do, we will ignore wrongs. Through love, we ignore wrongs. That's the first example of a devotion to love. Second, through love, we help others. We help others. In verse 9, Peter gives a very specific example of the outworking of love. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. This is a case where we need to work a little bit to, to bring this example into our context. When, when we hear the word hospitality, we think of rather simple things like having someone over for dinner or, or opening our homes for a game night. We, we might think about having our friend or family member stay in our, our house overnight when they visit on vacation. That's what we think about with hospitality. Well, in Peter's day, hospitality was bigger than that. Hospitality meant opening one's home for others. Hard stop. This was particularly necessary because the public accommodations of that day were, one, very scarce, and two, not reputable places for believers to stay. Traveling Christians needed places to stay as they traveled from place to place. Since the church was new, it was not uncommon, though, for the people who needed lodging to be individuals that you didn't know. They're strangers to you. The only thing you know is they claim to know the same Savior as you know. Furthermore, we're at a time here where we can, we've seen already from Peter's letter that Christians are poor people. They're suffering already. And now you have somebody show up on your doorstep and is going to take use of your hospitality to eat the food that you scarcely have enough of to feed your own family. How long will they stay? Until they leave. We don't know. Such hospitality in that day was a real sacrifice. It was a matter of maybe a mild inconvenience. It was sacrifice. We're also at a time where the local churches depended upon their members, at least one of their members, opening their home for the church to gather in. Well, remember, we've seen already being a Christian is not popular. It's causing them to be at least mildly persecuted and, and mocked and toned and various things from the world around them. Well, if you have a whole group of people in your home, talk about raising a flag to your neighbors, probably nosy neighbors in a small town. You're a Christian. Hosting the church may mean that you no longer can find a job in the marketplace come Monday morning. Sacrifice. Yet notice, not only are the people to provide such hospitality, Peter adds... Those final words, without complaint. Ouch. How many of you are like me, really good at complaining? The people are not supposed to begrudge the opportunity to sacrifice from their own stuff for the needs of other believers. That's where I get the idea of helping others. In general, we have a much lower need to provide hospitality to one another if, if we restrict the term hospitality to our home serving as a meeting place or for lodging. We do, however, have countless opportunities to use the stuff that God has given us to meet the needs of others 
that also love our Savior. We can take our time as well as our resources and help others in the church. That is what love demands that we do. Just a real easy example. Yesterday, the Weslowskis needed help moving. Now, I don't know who all was there. I saw a list on, on Facebook, so I know several were there. I, I'm sure that was some of the people in this room. That took time out of your day. It was a sacrifice to help. Helping others with love is doing that. The opportunities to help are many because the needs that we have are many. God gives us needs simply so that we can have opportunities to help each other. But don't forget, we are to provide all the help to others without complaining. We're not to complain that helping so-and-so infringed upon my own desires. Our helping will take time. It will take money. And yet we're not to complain. We're to help without complaining because the end is near. And when the end comes, our time and money is meaningless anyway. The only thing that will matter is that our Savior says, well done. The end is near, our Savior is coming in. Until that time, we must devote ourselves to love. Through love, we help others. We must devote ourselves to love. Through love, we ignore wrongs. Through love, we help others. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. Peter now closes out this letter with one additional area. After devoting ourselves to love, he also closes out, we must devote ourselves to service. To service. We all have received grace from God. Through Jesus Christ, we receive grace. And in fact, Peter says manifold grace. That, that, that word means it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms, the grace that we receive from God. All of it poured into our lives for the purpose of making us ultimately like Christ. God applies our, our lives in manifold ways, but regardless of the form that grace takes in our lives, God shapes it into something that makes us useful to him. And because God has done that, we have a stewardship responsibility to take the grace that God has given us and use it for others. Use it in service of others. Specifically in verses 10 and 11, we, we can note two things about grace that we receive from God. Now that, that we're stewards of this grace, here's what we need to do. First, through service, we build others up. We build others up. Each of us is given by God through grace a spiritual gift, a, a charisma, a, a spiritual gift that, that we employ. Peter breaks these gifts just into two categories. He said you can break it down. There's gifts of speaking, there's gifts of service, helping, doing. But between these two categories, he says everything that we're doing in the church, it, it can be summarized as either speaking or, or doing. Both sets of gifts are given for the purpose of building up other believers in the church, helping them grow in their faith. That's why God gives you your spiritual gifts. Speaking is done to teach about Christ. We, we take God's word and we, we speak it into the lives of others. We use it. 
exhorting, encouraging, comforting, correcting, instructing, rebuking, all these various things we do with the Word of God. And, and God has given that spiritual gift to pastors and teachers, certain individuals as gifts themselves to the church to, to aid in that, to further. And then through them we speak into the lives of each other as we take what we hear and we help apply it. So some are really good at speaking gifts. Serving is simply performing the activities that enable Christians to experience the grace of God. The, the doing side of things that help people experience it, live it out. It, it might be something as simple as working in the nurseries on a Sunday morning so that parents can be in here listening to the speaking of God's word. They can hear the exposition in a sermon. It might be making a meal and taking it to someone who is sick, a mother, so that she can experience the tangible comfort that that God brings into her life as he places her on somebody's mind. Both speaking and serving gifts are there allowing us to function as, as channels of God's grace flowing into the lives of others. As God's grace flows from one person to another, people are built up in their faith as God's grace flows from one person to another, the, the church is strengthened. Let me ask you, who are you serving with the grace that God has given you? Who are you serving? Are you building others up? Are you strengthening our church with your gift? Each of us should be serving others. Every one of us should be pouring our lives into others. I know that several of you are, are, are making a concerted effort to do this as, as you've begun discipleship relationships with, with one another. As there's people meeting one-on-one, believer with believer, studying God's word, praying together, encouraging each other in the faith. This is serving one another. Now, one of the main times that this is occurring is on Wednesday nights as there's pairs of people spreading throughout this building, serving one another. Overall, we've got roughly, I think, 20 pairs engaged in this in the church. And if you want to be paired up with someone, pour your life into someone else, let either me or Pastor Aaron or Carl know we'll help hook you up with someone. Or just simply go ask someone and say, do you want to study God's word together? Do you want to pray together? And then come ask us for some material. We would be glad to help you get going. Building others up. Using your life to serve others. We must devote ourselves to service. Through service, we build up others. That's the first thing about the grace that God has given us that Peter brings out. Through service, we build up others. Second, he also shows us at the end of verse 11 that through service... We display God's glory. We display God's glory. Displaying God's glory. That is our ultimate goal, isn't it? That is why we are here. That's why we exist. That is why we bear his image. We don't bear the image of God for any reason other than to display his glory in his creation. That is why we've been redeemed. God redeemed us from our sins so that we'd be trophies of his grace, displaying his glory for all eternity. This is why we are being sanctified. This is why we magnify our Savior. This is why 
We are here. Everything we do is so that we can display God's glory. Well, serving others displays God's glory. You may have not noticed it, but when we live in this world, we're living in a selfish world. Now, you may have not noticed it, but, you know, the people around us tend to think of themselves first. Sin leaves people self-centered. Sin leaves people self-centered. They're their own little God. They care about their own little universe above all else. When we serve others, we flip that totally on its head. When we serve others in a sacrificial manner, we do something that is completely unnatural to a sin-filled world. We place the interests of others before our own interests. We live with somebody else as being more important than us. When the world sees a church filled with people who live this way, it is stunning. It is unfathomable. It is unique. When the world sees a church filled with people who serve others, God's glory shines forth. Through service, we display God's glory. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another. We devote ourselves to service. Through service, we build up others. And through service, we display God's glory. Since the end is near, we should devote ourselves to one another for God's glory. The end is near. There is nothing else on God's redemptive calendar that must occur before Christ comes. We are to live our lives ready for his coming at any moment, anticipating that the end is near. Remember, when people know that the end is near, it focuses their attention, it galvanizes their activities on on that which is of ultimate importance. We see that over and over when people know that their human life is about to end. Well, believers, believers in Jesus Christ, believers in the one who we believe is coming again, we should be equally focused, knowing that that end could happen at any moment. It is near. The people sitting around us, other believers in in Jesus Christ, these are the people who will go into eternity with us. We should devote ourselves to these people because the end is near. This morning we've seen three things we should devote ourselves to because the end is near. One, we should devote ourselves to prayer. Two, we should devote ourselves to love. And three, we should devote ourselves to service. Devoting ourselves to one another to display the glory of God because the end is near. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would encourage all of us to become increasingly devoted to one another for your glory. May we take Peter's words to heart. May we be galvanized in our actions, captivated in our imagination, focused in our thoughts because 
the end is near. Father, may that transform how we live. May we live in a manner that is devoted one another as you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.